Just through the book of Romans, we come this morning to Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 13. And before I read, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, I, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, as we've been worshiping you and, and honoring you, Lord Jesus, as our King, I pray now that you would send your spirit into our hearts, O oh Lord, to give us understanding and to give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truths of your word. That they may be planted deep in us, that they may lead us into a deeper understanding and, and awareness and worship of who you really are and what you have done for us. that it might bear fruit of transformation that would be for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. So last week uh, we looked at Romans 7 verses 1 through 6, which uh, uh, Paul is you know, beginning to talk about the law in a, in a more... Uh, focused way in, in here in chapter 7, and so kind of looking uh, last week at the uh, dangers of, of legalism and how we are released from the law through the death of Christ. And so Paul continues now to talk about law and its relation to sin uh, in verses 7 through 13. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. And did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. You may be seated. In uh, the 1987 movie, the, the Princess Bride, one of the characters in the movie keeps on using the word inconceivable. 
And over and over again, those things that he says are inconceivable. That's inconceivable. It's inconceivable. And over and over again, those things that he says are inconceivable keep on happening. And finally, his, his comrade, uh, Inigo Montaya, says to him, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. As we continue our study of Romans 7, we find that Paul keeps using the word law. In fact, he uses that word 74 times in the book of Romans, which is far more than all of his other uses and all of his letter, other letters combined. I think all of the other letters, I think, comes to like 47 uses of the word law. In Romans, he uses the word 74 times. And so before we go any further, we really need to be sure that that it means what we think it means. And so when Paul talks about the law, which is the uh, translation of the Greek nomos, when Paul talks about the law throughout Romans, he is typically referring to Mosaic law, meaning all of the commands and the decrees that God revealed to his people through Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, sometimes, so that, that's the, that's, Far and away, almost usually, the vast majority of the time, that's what Paul means. Not, not the Ten Commandments, that's, that's too narrow, but not, not the whole sweep of the law, you know, not law in the broadest sense of the term, that's too broad. So he's usually referring to that, the, that Mosaic law, the, in the commands and the decrees that God revealed at Mount Sinai. Sometimes Paul will use the word in the broader sense to designate the whole Old Testament, and, and the context usually makes, makes that clear. Once or twice, he uses the word in reference to the, to the moral law or the natural law. And again, context makes that clear as well. But most often, over 90% of the time, he's talking about God's instruction for how he wants his people to live as revealed through Moses at Sinai. And that is what Paul means by the word here in Romans 7. Now, at this point in Paul's letter, most of what he has said in relation to the law has been has been negative, and in fact, quite negative. In fact, what he has said would have been quite shocking and even scandalous to many of his Jewish listeners. He said in chapter 3, just to give you kind of a brief little review of, of the negative language surrounding the, his use of the law, he said in chapter 3, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. And he said a little later in chapter 3 that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. He said in chapter 4 that the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. In chapter 5, he said the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. In chapter 6, he said you are not under the law, but you are under grace. And all of this sort of culminated then in the first part of chapter 7, where Paul kind of just, just sort of piles on his negative language surrounding the law. He said in chapter 7, verse 4, you died to the law through the body, through the death of Christ. And he said that when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law bore fruit for death. And finally, he said, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. And Paul understands 
That, that after all of this, some might think that he is against the law, that he is an anti-nomian, anti-against nomian, uh, nomos law, one who is against the law, that he hate, Paul hates the law. Paul is, he's anti-law, he's against the law, he doesn't like the law, he thinks the law is wicked, the law is bad, the law is evil, there's no good in the law at all. And so he understands that some people might be thinking that he's this, this sort of anti-nomian kind of a person, and he writes this section of, of Romans 7 to clarify his take on the law and to clarify the relationship between the law and sin. So as we uh, dive into these verses, we can draw from this text, this is where we're going, two main points and one gospel conclusion. Two main points and one gospel conclusion. The first main point that Paul wants us to see is that the law itself is good. He asks the question in verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? And his response is that emphatic Greek expression, meganoitos, certainly not. May it never be. God forbid. By no means. And so Paul vehemently denies the idea that he thinks the law is bad. In fact, he says in verse 12, and he, he couldn't really possibly use any more positive language than he does in verse 12 when he says the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. And so he states very plainly his positive view of the law. It is holy. It is righteous. It is good. And Paul would then agree with the psalmist who said in Psalm 19, who painted so beautifully, spoke of the law in such glowing terms in Psalm 19 when he said the law of the Lord is perfect. And, and by the way, um, as I read these verses, all of the different uh, words used, the, the, the law, the statutes, the, the precepts, the commands, the decrees, all of those are synonyms. All of it refers to the law, the law that God had revealed through Moses. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to their eyes. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And in keeping them, there is great Reward. Now, oh, what a beautiful picture, what a beautiful description of what the law really is. The psalmist speaks in these glowing terms about the beauty of the law and how good it is for, for those who live by it. And, and you could do the same thing with the longest psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 119. The entire psalm is devoted to the beauty and the goodness of the law. The law of God here in Psalm 19 is perfect and trustworthy. It is right and radiant. It refreshes the soul. It breathes wisdom. It gives joy to the heart and light to the eyes. And Paul would agree with all of that. The law itself is good. He said in verse 10 that it was intended to bring life, that God's law is and so God's law, I think we can think of it this way, is established, is his established environment in which his people can best thrive and, and, and live life to the fullest. I, th I think I've used this example before, but I'll use it again. So if you, if you think of, we can think of God's law, I think, like, uh, like 
a pasture, a fenced-in pasture for horses. So if you, if you imagine a horse farm on, on however many acres, 80, 100, 200, whatever, how many, how many, how many acres you want, a, a big, huge horse farm. And the farmer puts a fence around the, the whole perimeter of the land. And so the horses have these 80 acres or however many of, of beautiful lands to enjoy. And there are streams of clear water flowing through the property. And there are grassy hills where the, the horses can, can run around and soak in the sun. And there are shade trees to cool off when it gets too hot. And there are apple trees to feast on. And there is everything that a horse could ever want. And everything that brings a horse its greatest delight and its deepest satisfaction we are, are all found within the boundaries boundaries of that fenced land. And, and outside the fence, the land is barren and it is dangerous and life outside the fence would only lead to misery and destruction. What well, God's law is like that fenced-in property. It is God's means of providing the kind of life that results in our greatest satisfaction and delight, the kind of life that, that protects us from that which is empty and, and destructive, a life that is for our good and for God's glory. And this is what the psalmist was getting at in Psalm 1. The Psalm 1 is the introduction to the whole Psalter and lays out the, the themes, of the, the broad themes of the whole Psalter. And not, not only that, but the broad themes of all of wisdom literature in general. And so the psalm is, is a very important psalm and it lays out these key themes. And it begins by saying, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And who meditates on this law day and night. And that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. I mean, what a, what a beautiful picture. I mean, this is the kind of picture. And the psalm begins by painting a picture of the kind of life that everybody wants to have. This is the kind of life that we all want. And it is found that the kind of life that, that you know, is, is flourishing and thriving and bearing fruit and, and lush and vibrant and, and radiant. And this is found, the psalmist says, for those who meditate on the law day and night, who delight in God's law. And again, Paul would agree, the law itself is beautiful and good. It defines the boundaries in which God's people can flourish and thrive. But here's a question then, well, if the law is good, then, then why does Paul speak in such negative terms when he talks about the law, right? That, that's, that's the critical question. Why does he say then that, that those who are under the law bear fruit for death? Well, here's this beautiful picture of the tree, right? That thriving and, and bearing fruit in season, prospering. Well, how can Paul then say that those who are under the law bear fruit for death? And how can he say that the law brings wrath instead of righteousness? Well, the answer to that question is the second main point of our text, and that is that the problem is not the law, but, but sin. And Paul says that sin works through the law to bring death. And, and when he talks about death, and he, at least three times in this short little text, he talks about bringing death, law bringing death. And by death, he means spiritual death, condemnation. Using the example of coveting, which is a, a sin of desire, uh, Paul says in verse 10, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. And, and how did the law bring death? Well, it wasn't the law itself. 
So, so Paul you know, exonerates the law. It was, it was sin working through the law. He says in verse 11 that for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. And then again in verse 13, he says that sin used what is good, that is the law, to bring about my spiritual death, my condemnation. So Paul is saying the problem is not the law. The law is good. The law is beautiful. The law is righteous. The law is holy. Everything about the law is good. The problem is not the law. The problem is sin. Were it not for sin, the law would lead to life. But because of sin, the combination of law and sin together leads to death. Now we talked about this a few weeks ago, so I don't need to say a whole lot more about it here, but Paul is basically saying that the law functions like a catalyst for sin. That the law arouses our sinful passions, as he said in verse 6 or verse 5. It, it awakens sin that was lying dormant within us. And so the real villain in the story is, is sin, not the law. It is sin that works through the law to bring this spiritual death and condemnation. And Paul says that the way this this works out in practice is that sin basically hijacks the law and uses it for our destruction. So look again at what he says in verse 10. He says, for sin seizing the opportunity, notice that, 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 that sort of military-like language, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. Now that word opportunity is a translation of the Greek word aforme, which is a, a military word that describes a, a military base or the, the base of operations. And so what happens, the way this works out is that sin seizes the law's base of operations and it uses it for its own evil purposes. And so instead of being a, a base of operations to produce satisfaction in life and this, this beautiful thriving tree as God intended, sin turns it into a base of operations for destruction and death. And so Paul says in verse 13 that sin used what is good, like a virus entering into a host to overtake it and, and use its host to bring about my death. And we experience how this works, how this plays out in everyday life, don't we? James Boyce once told about a time when he was in the sixth grade and the school principal came into their classroom right before they were going to be released to go in and over lunch, they all went to their homes. Most went to their homes for lunch. So before they were released to go to their homes for lunch, the principal came into the classroom and he had this special announcement and he made an announcement about how, uh, about how uh, nobody could bring, about how he had heard that students had been bringing firecrackers into the school. And, and he said he wanted to make it crystal clear that under no circumstances could anybody by any means ever bring a firecracker into the school. He said, and he went into this big, huge speech about how, how dangerous they are and how awful they are and how it's against state law to even have firecrackers. And so he said, to make sure that I'm crystal clear on this, he said, any, any student who, who ever brings a firecracker into the building, even if it's not, even if they don't light it, will be immediately expelled. And Boyce said that he hadn't been thinking about firecrackers at all. He didn't even know that any students had ever brought any firecrackers into the school building, but now that the command was given, prohibiting firecrackers, well, he was now drawn to the idea. 
And his sinful nature hijacked the command. Here's the command. The command is given. Don't bring firecrackers into the school. His sinful nature, the moment the command came, was right there with him, hijacked the command and provoked him to do the very thing that the command was prohibiting him to do. And so what did he do? Well, on the way home for lunch, he remembered he had a friend who happened to have some firecrackers. And on the way back from after lunch, on the way back uh, to the school, he stopped at that friend's house and they grabbed a firecracker and then brought it into the school building. And then they got inside the school building and they lit the firecracker inside the classroom. Now their plan was to extinguish it. It was kind of just a joke with their friends, right? Hey, let's, you know, we'll light this and then we're going to you know, pinch it out with our, with our fingers and no big deal, nobody will ever know. They didn't really think that if you try to pinch it off with your fingers, it might burn your fingers. And so they, when they tried to pinch it off, it, it burned their, their, his fingers and he dropped it to the ground and the thing went off right there in the classroom. And he says, you cannot imagine how loud a firecracker sounds in an old school building with high ceilings and marble floors and plaster walls. And you cannot imagine, he says, how quickly a principal, an old principal can rush out of his office and into a classroom. Now, unfortunately, he doesn't tell us how the story ends. <laughs> I cannot imagine it ended well. But this is how our sinful nature works. It seizes God's good law and it uses it for evil. It, it, it hijacks the law that is intended to preserve life and it turns it into a base of operations for death. John Piper uses the same kind of language when he says that we can, we can think of the law like a surgeon's scalpel, that it's meant to be an instrument of, of life and of healing, but sin comes in and, and it takes that scalpel of the law and it uses it to slash people's throats. Sin uses what is good as an instrument of death. And so Paul says at the end of verse 13 that we see then how utterly sinful our sinful nature is. We see how, how powerful and how thoroughly wicked it is that it would take what God made to be good and use it for evil. Right? That, that it would hijack what was meant to be this beautiful thing to bring life and it would use it to bring death. I mean, it's one thing to, it's one thing to, to you know, bring death. It's a, it's a whole other level to use something good that was meant to bring life and use that to bring death. Paul wants us to see sin for the enemy it is. It is like a beastly villain that is bent on our destruction. When we come to a knowledge, listening into Paul's the language that Paul uses, when we come to a knowledge of God's command, sin is right there and it springs to life like an enemy in ambush. It seizes the law's base of operations and it works through it to put us to death. It deceives and destroys. We see this same nature of sin in God's words to Cain, don't we? In Genesis chapter 4, if you remember that way early on in, in human history, how Cain and Abel were, Cain was working in the fields and, and Abel was tending the flocks and, and how they both brought offerings to God and Cain brought an offering from the land and, and Abel brought an offering from the flocks and, and God was pleased with, with Abel's offering and he was not pleased with Cain's offering and how that made Cain just 
burn with anger and jealousy. And in that moment when he was angry and you know, jealous of God's favor on Abel and, and, and that God wasn't so happy with his own offering, in that moment God came to him and God spoke to him. And do you remember what God said? God said to him, and listen to the language that God uses to describe sin. God said to Cain, in that moment, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. This this is God talking about sin. Listen again to the language God uses, crouching at your door, wanting to have you, wanting to invade you and to overtake you like a parasite overtakes its host. This is what our sinful nature is like. It uses God's good law to bring about our spiritual death and condemnation. This is why scripture urges us to flee from sin. You... You, you don't draw a line in the sand around a ravenous beast and then see how close you can get to that line without crossing over. You don't play games with the beast by kind of dancing around it and poking it with sticks. You, you, you run from the beast. You stay as far away from the beast as you can. I, I saw a I saw a little video, I don't, this was a little while ago. Um, I don't know if it was in Africa, I'm not sure where it was, but there was, it was a video of a, of a lion crouching by a, by a uh, water pool, taking a drink of water. And this man comes up, I don't know if it, I don't know if it was a zoo setting or if, if there's a safari type thing, I don't know what it was, but this man came up behind the lion as it's this big male Lion, as it's crouching down, drinking water, comes up behind it, and it, and it, and it like, you know, pounces on its back to, to scare it, and then runs away. And just, a, a to, just a, like the stupidest thing that you could ever think to do. You, you, you don't sneak up on a lion and play games with it while it's drinking at the water. But you, you don't do, I mean, you don't do that. How, who, who would ever think to do that? I mean, this, this lion is, is, is a predator that could, that could destroy you just like that. You, you don't play games. You don't flirt. You don't tease. You don't, you don't prance on a lion, pounce on a lion, and, and you, just, you just don't do stupid things. You don't play games with a beast and poke at it with sticks. You run away and stay as far away as you can. Some of us have forgotten what a ravenous beast sin is. We've grown comfortable with it. We think we've tamed it. We let our guard down, and we're getting closer and closer to the beast, thinking that no harm will come until eventually we're, we're, we think we can sneak up on it and, and play little games with it, and no big deal, no harm will come. And God says, do not be deceived. The beast of sin is crouching at your door, and it's ready to pounce. And it thirsts for your destruction, and so run from it. Don't, don't go anywhere near it. Don't, don't try to get as close to that line as you can. Do whatever it takes to run away from the beast. The deeper we wade into this tangled mess of sin in the law, the more profoundly we feel the, the weight of the problem. 
And that brings us then to the gospel conclusion. Paul wants us to see that there is only one way out of this tangled mess. And that is the problem of sin and the law points us to Christ. Paul, and I hate to draw, I I hate to jump ahead and draw from things that are to come in the near future, but I have done that before and then I get to it, you know, a couple weeks later and think, oh man, I wish I hadn't said that a couple weeks ago so I got to repeat myself. But I'm going to do it again anyway. So Paul brings his discussion of sin and the law to this dramatic conclusion at the end of chapter 7 when he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Oh, I'm, I'm in such a miserable state, and who can, who, is there anything that can, that can bring me out of it? In other words, through this tangled mess of, of sin and the law, I am doomed to spiritual death, and I have nothing within myself to, to change my condition. And so who will rescue me from this state of condemnation? And he gives this answer to his question, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. It all, it all drives to, to Christ. The problem of sin and the law points us to Jesus. And it points us really to the deep meaning of Palm Sunday. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the crowds waved their palm branches and they shouted, Hosanna to the, to the son of David. Hosanna to in the Hosanna in the highest. These were shouts of praise to the to the promised king. But they didn't know what kind of king he was. They didn't see what we see. They didn't know what we know. They thought he was riding into Jerusalem to sit on a throne and conquer the enemy of Rome. That's what they thought. That's what they were hailing. That's what they were celebrating as they waved their palm branches. They had no idea that he was riding into Jerusalem to hang on a cross and conquer the enemy of sin. The early 19th century preacher Charles Simeon said, there are but two objects that I have ever desired to behold. There are but two objects that I have ever desired to behold. The one is my own vileness, and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we see both of those together at the cross. And that is the real wonder of Palm Sunday that the king we worship is the king who came to be killed for our sin, that the the freedom that we enjoy from this tangled mess of sin and the law is a freedom purchased by the one who, who, who hung condemned in our place at the cross. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. And when he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let us worship in wonder and praise our true king. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, As we come before your throne in a time of silent prayer and response, we 
we do praise you, O Lord, as our king. Not as the earthly king who came to conquer the enemy of Rome, but as our king of kings, our universal cosmic king who came to conquer the enemy of sin. Oh, Lord, I pray that in this moment you would show us by your spirit those ways that we need to run from sin and submit to your lordship as king over our lives. And I pray that you would show us those ways, oh, Lord, in which you are the king who is most worthy of our praise. Lord, hear our silent prayers. Oh, Lord, you say through the psalmist that you have installed your king on Zion, your holy mountain. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. Oh, Lord, we come under your lordship as our king. May we find refuge in you as we flee from our sin and as we submit and, and exalt you in true wonder and worship and praise that you were the one, the king of kings who came to be killed for our sin, the one who was condemned in our place that we might be free. Oh, Lord, we worship you for what you have done. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.